Christ promised them that he will make all true believers someday like pillars in God's presence. Nothing will unsettle you. Nothing will shake you. Nothing will change your place, your position. You are secure in Christ and in the presence of God forever. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part 12 of his current series, The Seven Churches of Revelation. Tom will continue his examination of the letter to the sixth church mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the church at Philadelphia. Today you'll learn that it doesn't matter how long you've been faithful to Christ and to His Word, or how long you've never denied His name. Even though you'll not be disqualified or lose your reward, the message from the church at Philadelphia is this. Believe Christ's Word, keep and obey His Word, and fulfill the duties He's given you. Live in love and loyalty to Him, faithfully anticipating His return. Keep pressing onward until your final breath or until his return. Let's join our teacher now as he returns to the church at Philadelphia on The Word Unleashed. Now notice Christ begins verse 10 with the reason he makes the promise that follows to the church. So let's start with the reason, verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Believers in Philadelphia were characterized, as we've noted, by enduring faithfulness. But notice he specifically says, you have kept or you have followed the message you heard about my perseverance. He says, you, you've heard about my endurance. You've heard how I kept my, my face set toward the cross, how I, I kept my face set there for the joy that was set before me. You understand that. And you have kept that same message. Jesus' own endurance in trials provided a pattern for the endurance of the believers in Philadelphia. And because of their enduring faithfulness, following the pattern of Christ himself, he makes them this amazing promise. Look at verse 10. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now that is an amazing promise, but... What exactly is the promise? Well, to determine what Christ meant, we have to ask and ask or answer two questions. First of all, what is the hour of testing? Well, there are two possibilities. One is he's talking about a brief localized trial, like the one in Smyrna, you remember, in chapter 2, verse 10. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that Jesus is talking about the great tribulation. That seven-year period when God pours out his wrath on this world and takes back this world for his son. It has to be the second option for several reasons. First of all, what Christ was describing, notice, would come upon the whole world. Now, the whole world, that expression occurs two other times in Revelation, 12, 9, and 16, 14. In both cases, it's the entire world of unbelievers. Also, what Christ was describing here in this verse was intended, notice, to test those who dwell on the earth. 
That expression, those who dwell on the earth, or we could say earth dwellers, that expression occurs many times in Revelation, and it always refers to the entire world of unbelievers. So both expressions here then point to a worldwide time of wrath that God will bring upon the entire world of unbelievers. In context, in Revelation, this has to be referring to the judgments that are called the judgments of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls that Christ himself will unleash on the whole world during the future seven-year period called the tribulation. It's described, as we'll see, from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19. This period is the same as Daniel's 70th week. You can check that out. We studied through Daniel. You can go back and listen to that. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30. So what Jesus is talking about here is not some localized trial for the church in Philadelphia. He's talking about the great tribulation. And by the way, that's what most agree that Jesus is referring to. So that brings us to our second question, and this is the one where there's a little more debate. What does keep from mean? Well, there are two possibilities again. First of all, it could mean that Christ will protect his people by preserving them through the tribulation and preserving them from God's wrath as they live through it. Those who take this view support this view by citing John 17, 15, where the same preposition is used, and it says, I do not ask you to take them out of, ek is the preposition, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They say, listen, there's Jesus saying, I'm not saying pull them out of the world, just preserve them through it, so that must be what that means here. Well, that's a little quick because John 17, 15 has an entirely different context. It describes the present battle with evil, not God's future wrath. A second option is that it means Christ will protect his people by removing them from the tribulation. They will not be in it. That is, those who have come to Christ before it begins. This preposition that's translated here, from, can also mean to preserve by removing. In fact, I think the expression Christ uses here, to keep from an hour of testing, strongly argues for this interpretation. Think about it. Why would you say, I'm going to... I'm going to preserve them through an hour. The implication of even the short time frame references the idea of protection from. Christ promised to keep this church and all faithful believers from the coming tribulation. Now, let me just say, this verse doesn't prove a pre-tribulational rapture that Christ is coming before the tribulation begins. There are other passages where it's taught more explicitly, John 14, 1 to 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, 1 Thessalonians 4. You can, if you're curious about the rapture, I did a couple of messages on it in our systematic theology series. You can go back and listen. My only point here is to say that this verse complements and certainly supports the idea that Christ will come for his church and remove them from the tribulation, from the, the earth before the tribulation begins. He is promising that he will keep his church and all faithful believers from the coming tribulation. That brings us back to our text. 
we've seen Christ's commendation, his promises to the church. In verse 11, we see Christ's call for perseverance. Verse 11, he says, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. Now, this isn't like the previous references in the letters to the churches about the coming of Christ. Before this, the references to his coming have been in judgment on individual churches. You remember he said to Ephesus, I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna remove your lampstand. To Pergamum, Sardis, he said, I'm gonna come quickly and you're not gonna know when I come. And the implication is he's coming to, to judge, to punish because of their sin. But here in verse 11, it's positive. And in light of verse 10, that's just talked about being, being delivered from the coming tribulation, this reference must be to Christ coming for his church in the rapture. And of course, throughout the, the book of, of Revelation, there is a reference to Jesus coming, either in this case, his, his coming for his saints before the tribulation, in many other cases, his coming, as we'll see at the end of the tribulation and the second coming when his feet will land on the Mount of Olives. But notice what he says, in light of my soon coming, verse 11, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. This is a command to keep on persevering in the faith. Look at hold fast. I love that expression. It means to hold on to something. The the Greek lexicon defines it this way, to hold on to something so that it isn't taken away. Hold fast. It's in the present tense in the Greek language. It implies continual, constant effort. Keep on holding on so that what you have isn't taken away. Maintain your faithfulness. Now, what's what you have? Hold fast to what you have. That's probably a reference to what Christ said they had just a few verses before. Their diligence to keep Christ's word, their refusal to deny his name. Keep on holding on. But notice he adds a warning in verse 11, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. That is a remarkable statement. Jesus says if they stop being faithful to him and his word, they would lose their reward. Christ says, I will take away the crown that you would have received if you are disqualified in the end. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, you know, I discipline my body so that I'm not disqualified. Paul had had a lot of ministry, a lot of years of faithfulness, but he recognized that he could still be disqualified. He could still lose his reward. So Christ says, hold fast to your faithfulness. We'll come back to that in a moment. Keep on persevering. That brings us to the third part of this letter, and that is its conclusion, which is an exhortation to each believer in verses 12 and 13. It begins with a call to overcome. Verse 12, he who overcomes. You remember I've mentioned this to you each time, but let me just say it again for those who are guests. In John's writings, an overcomer is not some elite sort of seal Christian. It's a true believer who just keeps on believing. 1 John 5, 4 and 5, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. All you have to do is be born of God. And this is the victory which has overcome the world, our faith. You just have to keep on believing in Christ. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Those verses describe you. You're an overcomer. 
And these promises are for you. Every believer is an overcomer. Folks, that means every single believer will inherit all of the promises made in all seven of these letters to those who overcome. But the specific promise that Christ makes in each letter is tailored, crafted to the believers and circumstances in that particular church. Notice what the promise to overcomers, to true believers, what those promises are in Philadelphia. And again, these weren't just to them. If you're a believer, these are to you. Notice what Christ promises. First of all, believers will become a permanent fixture in God's presence. Believers will become a permanent fixture in God's presence. Look at verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar, of course, pictures stability, permanence. But what is the temple of my God? You remember Revelation ends by telling us that in the new earth, there is no temple. In the new Jerusalem, there's no temple. Chapter 21, verse 22, because the Lord and the Lamb are its temple. So the picture of a pillar in the temple here is just a metaphor for being in a stable, permanent place in Christ's eternal kingdom. Now, Again, think about the city. These believers lived, lived in a city where there was very little stability and permanence because of the frequent earthquakes and the economic disasters. Their lives were always in upheaval and turmoil because of the persecution they endured. But Christ promised them, and believer, he promises us that he will make all true believers someday like pillars in God's presence. Nothing will unsettle you. Nothing will shake you. Nothing will change your place, your position. You are secure in Christ and in the presence of God forever. Notice in verse 12, he says, and he will not go out from it anymore. Again, remember the history of the city. After the earthquake in 17 AD, many of the people moved outside the city and built temporary dwellings there. Jesus is saying, look, in my city, that's never going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're going to have permanent security inside the city of God. They would never again be forced from their homes. This is such a powerful reminder, isn't it? That here our lives are marked by upheaval, danger, uncertainty. We live in hard and difficult times. But in Christ's kingdom, believers, we will enjoy permanent security and stability. You'll be like a pillar that never moves in the presence of God himself. Christ adds, believers will receive a new name. Christ promises he will write on every believer three new names. First of all, he says, verse 12, I will write on him the name of my God. Now in the Old Testament, God placed his name on the Israelites, marking them as belonging to him. For example, Deuteronomy 28.10, all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. In Revelation, we're going to see that unbelievers alive during the tribulation are marked on their forehead with what? The mark of the beast. But God's people are marked with his name. Revelation 14.1, look at it. Revelation 14.1, notice what he says. Then I looked, and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, notice this, having his name and the name of his father 
written on their foreheads. Look at Revelation 22.4. Now we fast forward to the new heaven and the new earth, and it says, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. What does that mean? What's the significance of that? To have God's name written on you means that you are marked as belonging to him. You are his. You're his child. You share his character. And nothing is going to change that reality. The second name Jesus says he's going to give, notice verse 12 back in our text. He says, I'm also going to write on you the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. This imagery is likely borrowed from the Roman practice of citizenship in which you belonged to a specific city and your citizenship was tied to that city. You remember again and again, Paul is called Paul of Tarsus. Why? Because his Roman citizenship was tied to that town, to that community. And we're going to be marked with a new name, identified with a new city, the new Jerusalem. You remember again this city's history? Philadelphia had changed its name twice to Neo-Caesarea, to Flavia, both times to honor the emperor. Christ says he's going to give us a new name that will identify our permanent citizenship as belonging to the new Jerusalem, the capital city of the new earth that he makes. Beloved, we are citizens of an eternal city, the city of God. Christ promises true believers in verse 12 that he'll give us a third name and I'll write on them my new name, my new name. In Revelation 19, verse 12, Christ is described like this at the second coming. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. People ask me, so, so what is the name? Seems pretty obvious. The answer is, of course, I don't know, and neither does anyone else. The point isn't the identity of the new name or even its meaning. That's not the point. The main point is, folks, it's Christ's new name, and we will wear it too. We'll be his. You remember at the end of his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, We belong to him. The ones you've given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. Christ said, you love me and I love you, Father, and I love those whom you've given me and I want them to be with me. Someday, there'll be no doubt whose you are. Believer, Christ will write on you his new name and you will be his forever. We will eternally belong to him. So Christ has promised us that we will become permanent fixtures in God's presence for eternity, and we will receive three new names, a name that shows we belong to God the Father, a name that shows we are permanent citizens of an eternal city, the new Jerusalem, and a name that shows we belong eternally to Jesus Christ. Christ finishes with a call to listen in verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
This is a challenge to everyone who hears or reads these letters to pay close attention to what the Spirit is continually saying to all the churches and to everyone who reads this through his word. It's a call to every Christian and every church to hear this letter. Let me ask you tonight, have you heard this letter? Have you heard what Christ wants to teach you? What is that? How can we reduce this letter to its enduring lessons? Let me just give you two of them. These are the lessons from the church of Philadelphia. Lesson number one, what matters most to Christ is faithfulness to him and his word, not outward success. You will be evaluated, Christian, not on your successes because you had nothing to do with them. Anything you achieve is the work of God. That's why Paul says in the early chapters of Corinthians, he says, listen, I planted and Apollos watered, but we don't get any credit for that. God is the only one who can cause growth. And the same thing is true in our lives. The only good things, the only real successes we have, God did them. So how is God going to evaluate us? The answer is one thing, well, two things. One is our faithfulness, and the other is our motives. How do I know that? Look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's exactly what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 4 He says, verse 1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He said, that's my role as a church leader. I'm just a steward of God's mysteries. That's what I'm trying to do tonight, just be a faithful steward of the mysteries of God and his word. What's required in this case? It's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy, that is, loyal to our master and dependable in our duties. That's trustworthy loyal to our master and dependable in our duties. That's, that's all Christ asks. And that you do it for the right reason. Verse 5, he says, when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the motives of men's hearts. So just be trustworthy. Be loyal to Christ, to his word, and to the duties he's assigned you. That's all he asks. And do it because of him and not because of you. It's pretty straightforward. Secondly, we must persevere faithfully to the very end of life to keep our reward. You know, the believers in Philadelphia had been faithful. How do I know? I mean, Christ says they were. He had nothing bad to say about this church. They had kept Christ's word. They had not denied his name. But do you hear what Christ says to them? If they failed to hold fast to what they had, and if they stopped before their race was over, they risked losing their reward. Let me just say to you, this is sobering to me, and it ought to be to you. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how long you've been faithful to Christ and to his word and how long you've not denied his name. You've never gone beyond being disqualified and losing your reward. And so to hear Christ's word, hold fast what you have. Keep on enduring in faithfulness. Keep his word. Obey his word. Fulfill the duties he's he's given you. Live in love and loyalty to him, waiting for his return. And don't stop till the day you take your last breath or Christ returns. That's the lesson of the church in Philadelphia. It's one of enduring faithfulness. And you know what? You don't have to be great, showy, powerful, influential, important, well-known. All you have to be is known to Christ as one who is faithful. Let's pray together. 
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 12 of The Seven Churches of Revelation. Tom will bring you part 13 next time, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, faithfulness to Christ in all He commands and persevering toward those ends can seem difficult at times, can't it? It's extraordinarily difficult. And yet, Christ has given us the same commands He gave the church in Philadelphia. We are to believe His Word. We're to keep and obey His Word. We're to fulfill the duties that He's given us. We're to continue to live in love and loyalty to Him as we anticipate His return. These are commands to us. But you know, there's wonderful news, and that is, while I am responsible to seek to obey those commands, I am to persevere. My perseverance only happens because it is Christ Himself who preserves me. And he's the one who will preserve you as well. So the people who persevere don't do so because they're extraordinarily special. They do so because Christ has set his love upon us, and he will not allow us to fail. He will hold us fast. Thanks, Tom. Well, friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You'll find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.